BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hi, this is Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast. Welcome to a new episode. I'm here with my colleague, David Tainter. Hey, Josh. Hi, how are you? Good. Uh, well, we have we have uh, the first of our new feature today, which That's is right. we're going to be answering some of your questions, and then we're going to be talking to Adam Davidson, who is with The New Yorker magazine and is someone who has gone deeper than almost anybody on you know every aspect yeah. of the Trump-Russia probe, but, but specifically all of these different foreign deals, uh, you know, stuff in the Caucasus, stuff in parts of the former Soviet yeah, Union. Yeah, I think his... Um you know, his business reporting background gives him sort of a unique way into the story. You know, yeah, I think yeah. he's mentioned before, some people are kind of intimidated by complex business stories. He's obviously kind of mastered the form. And so it's just good to have that pers- perspective. Well, one of the things about, about business reporting is that if you're not steeped in it, it's a little hard to know, like, is that okay? Because sometimes <laughs> right. those things are okay, or at least they're just how they're done. And maybe there are reasons why it actually is a legitimate way to do business, but it's a little hard to know. Yeah. Um, so one thing we just have to follow that. Yeah. Stuff. One thing we just have to mention at the top of the episode is that it's an absolutely crazy hot week in New York yes. City. We're here in uh, kind of downtown Manhattan, um, just trying to stay cool. Yeah. And so in the background, you might hear a tiny, like, whirring kind of AC thing. It's just... Yeah, uh, normally we, we, we turn it off, but, like, in the studio, it's just, it, it, it's just too much. So speaking of, speaking of cooling off, let me, let me tell you something really quickly. Uh, born in Brooklyn and brewed in the Bronx, Grady's is New York's favorite cold brew. But you can have it delivered to your door no matter where you live. Their cold brew kit includes everything you need to create smooth, velvety cold brew at home. All you have to do is add water. No French press, no mess, no baristas. You save money, too. You get 36 cups of gourmet cold brew for only 30 bucks. That's less than a buck a cup. And shipping's free. Ready to give it a swirl? Get 20% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. So we have this new feature in our last episode. We told you about our new voicemail box that if you want a, if you have a question that you'd like to get an answer to, you can call that number. Uh, Tell us your first name, tell us where you're from, and ask the question, and we will answer it, or we will at least answer some of the questions on the air. Just to repeat, the number is 646-868-8393. Again, that's 646-868-8393. So if you have a question, give us a call. Again, tell us your first name, where you're from, and let us know your question. Keep it, try to keep it concise, because again, we will play your question on the air before I answer it. So we're gonna. This is the first. Should we get started. Yeah, let's do right. this. We have a we have a few questions, so let's let's do it. Hi, Joe from Pittsburgh. Considering that the investigation is already ongoing, don't you think whoever Trump nominates for the Supreme Court is going to have to recuse him or herself from all subsequent matters related to Russia? Thanks. Go Grady's. 
that, that the, the last part of that question. <laughs> Appreciate was the congrats. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. You know, I think this is a question where should they? Absolutely. Will they? I think it's very unlikely. The the one recent case where I remember a justice uh, recusing themselves, I believe, was Elena Kagan. I, I can't. I don't think it was one of the Obamacare cases. Perhaps it was. In any case, she. I should know this. She worked on the case somehow, and so she had to recuse herself. Um, I don't. First of all. I just think that given the politics of this and how politicized the Supreme Court is, I just don't think this this uh, next justice is going to recuse themselves. Even even if even if the normal course of things would suggest that they should, I just don't think they will. Um, Beyond that, though, I'm not sure we don't have a lot of precedents for situations like we're facing right now. I don't think simply having appointed the person uh, will be enough. But one way or another, I think they definitely should. I think the Democrats should hold it out as a condition, but I don't think it will happen. Yeah, hi. My name is Michael. I'm calling from upstate New York. I've got a question about Michael Cohen. Uh, I was thinking about the fact that uh, he spent a lot of time with Russians when he was younger. He's married to a Ukrainian woman and and I believe his parents were Holocaust survivors, so he's probably used to foreign languages in the home. Uh, my question is this, is Michael Cohen a Russian speaker? And if so, how fluent is he? Uh, what really got me thinking about this was my father was a, a CIA case officer in the Cold War and was fluent in several languages. He considered it something of a superpower to be able to understand conversations that uh, people assume you can't understand. Michael Cohen doesn't seem to be much of a lawyer. I'm wondering if that might be his superpower. Really appreciate the podcast. Uh, uh, thanks. Bye. Good question. Yeah, good question. I do not know the answer to this. And, and my, my, I believe he is not a, a Russian or Ukrainian language speaker. I, I say that only because I have done a lot of reporting on the guy, and that has just never come up. Um, the one thing I would say is, and again, the people he grew up with, by and large, are from Ukraine. Um, there are a lot of Russian speakers in Ukraine, the whole complicated story. I will say this. He he is married to a Ukrainian emigre. Um, he certainly so is his brother. His bro- exactly. So he has his whole extended family, or, or half of his extended family, is our people who not only have uh, Ukrainian or Russian descent, but actually were born there. So he must have been exposed to the language a lot. It's a little hard to figure that he wouldn't have some limited conversational ability, but it's never come up. So my assumption is that in the sense you're asking it, no, he is not a, a Russian or Ukrainian speaker, but I don't actually know. And there was the El Caribe nightclub in Brooklyn that his uncle was an owner in writing, yes. so, and there was the office, the Russian mob kind of yeah, had I up mean, there. So there's probably just there's lots osmosis of con- yeah, and kind there's of... Lot, I mean, well, here's one of the things, and not to get too far off the subject, but one of the things I'm, I'm, I have been struck about in the whole uh, Russia probe is that Paul Manafort spent more than a decade with his, you know, his line of work was in Ukraine and Russia, 
But here I know more specifically, it doesn't speak a word of either language. You'd kind of think you spend so much time yeah. there, you'd pick up a little, right? right? But apparently not. So I think the answer is no, although I do not know specifically. All right, let's, let's listen to the next question. Hey, Josh, this is Josh from Maryland. I'm a longtime listener since the days of the Florida recount. My question is, I recall before the 2016 election, you had posted that you were going to do a book on Trump. And I was just curious and wanted to know what had ever happened with that. Is that a project that you're still working on? Um, did his election actually change that project such that you're not working on it in the same way anymore? I know a lot of us would be very interested in, in reading it if it ever came out. So I was just curious whatever happened with that. Thanks so much. I'm glad you asked. This is it's a, it's a very good question. And in the lead up to the 26 election, I was working on a Trump book and working on a, a Trump book, but really a Trump election was book. Was this going to be an e-book or something yes, actually it was, printed? it or? was going to be, well, it was a, th- there was some idea that we might, you know, kind of also work with a publisher, but basically it was going to be an e-book. Um, and we had a schedule that it was going to come out, I believe in, I can't remember, it was December or, or, or January. Um, and it never came out. And here is why, first of all, it, is, it has not come out yet. I have actually uh, continued working on it uh, during Trump's presidency. But what happened is basically this. Um, When the election happened, I had a manuscript of about 50,000 words that I had that I had written. And I was I was even in the week or two before the election, I was, you know, doing a few thousand words (laughs) a a week. I was I was, you know, because I was on this kind of breakneck schedule. But. I did not expect Trump to win, as many people did not. And the structure of the manuscript that I had completed was based around him losing. And it wasn't just that that was going to be the sort of the, you know, the final chapter, Trump loses. But the whole basis of the analysis was was structured around that. So that... What I had, I really couldn't use. It wasn't just like, again, you sort of change the ending. The basic structure, the basic analysis was in key ways invalidated by by the outcome. Uh, once the election happened, obviously it was a, it was a great shock to many of us. Um, there, the amount of work we had to do on the site, blah, 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 blah. Basically, I shelved it. Um, and that was not my intention going in. Um, we even had, you know, uh, if you if people signed up for Prime during, I think, the last month before the election, they were going to get a, a free copy of the book. That is still the case, and I intend to still finish it. But that is that is basically what happened. Um, the book was about two thirds written when the election happened, but it was premised on an analysis that was invalidated by the outcome. So I I basically had to start from scratch. And I have been uh, working on it episodically over the last 18 months or so. Uh, But it has been difficult for me to to make progress because it's it's, uh, Trump's presidency is so protean and chaotic. It's... uh, just look at the past two weeks of yeah, news it's, that it's, we've it's, encountered. It's been challenging to uh, it's been challenging to write it because I don't know how the story ends or even completely <laughs> what the story is. So right. that's the answer. I, I continue to work on it, and I still will 
publish that book and and prime members will will get uh free digital copies of it and so that's that's the answer all right we got one more hey josh when democrats get back into power um how should they deal with uh all of the uh court packing that's going on right now um should they run on court packing should they try to add you know judges and uh you know, justices. Also, you know, with the structure of, of the, the Senate being undemocratic and, and um, you know, for so long the House being gerrymandered, you know, how ruthless do uh, Democrats need to be in, in restructuring the government so that um, these, these undemocratic results where Republicans are, are winning, um, you know, power without winning elections, um, at least, uh, you know, when it comes to popular vote totals in all three branches of the government, um, you know, like, how, how would you go about correcting that? And, and how, do, how do you convert that into a political message? This is a really good question. And I'll tell you, it's something I think about a lot because I have very, um, I don't know, I'm not sure, contradictory. I, I have impulses and beliefs that point in, in different directions. On the one hand, I think that Democrats just simply need to be much more aggressive politically, both in a campaign context and also what they try to do when they have power. I think if you look over the last 30 or 40 years of American history, um, besides all the differences in policies and tax policy and health care and all these different kind of things, to a great degree, the Republican Party and the conservative movement has been trying to reshape the government itself. And you see that in things like the consistent and highly successful reshaping of the federal judiciary. You see it in the assault on voting rights. You see it in gerrymandering. There's all sorts of ways. Again, it's not simply winning elections and pushing through policies. It is changing the very structure of the government. And Trump's election, although in some ways a historical accident, has turbocharged all of that. At the same time, I am still basically an institutionalist. And court packing, and to be clear, I think what we're talking about here is what Franklin Roosevelt tried and was prevented from doing in the late 30s, uh, just basically saying, well, you know, Supreme Court is nine people, well, we're going to make it 12, or we're going to make it 15, we're just going to add more people. That is very worrisome to me because at a certain point you you chew away at the structure of the government itself and you need rules that go beyond winning a particular election so it's a real challenge for democrats and people frankly who believe in the rule of law how to balance this you know there's one thing i've talked about on the site which is we have seen recently these battles between uh, skinheads and neo-Nazis and Antifa protesters where this is, you know, street violence, where basically both sides want to fight and want to fight out political questions through hooligan hooliganism and street violence. And there is certainly a semi a, some Democrats, people on the left who think, you know, difficult times call for extreme measures. I don't believe in political violence on principle, 
as I'm sure many of you do not. But the additional thing is that street violence, politics by force, is something that the right and Nazis and fascists can do far more coherently and frankly more effectively than people who believe in the rule of law and believe in free societies. So to an extent, once you start playing that game, you have already given half the game to the other side. And there is an analogous point about what we're talking about here, about breaking norms, about using momentary, momentary political power to lock in permanent gains. We are trying to, Democrats, the center-left, you know, non-Trump people, are trying to create a society, a politics, where there are rules and where they are not broken. So it's a really difficult question, and I do not have a final answer to it. I think, unfortunately, Democrats need to do both. They need to fight very hard. They need to try get into the business of reshaping the government itself. But they need to do that with an eye not simply to defeating the right, but creating a structure that is actually one that lives up to the values and the kind of society we want to live in. So let me just give you one example, I think, of that. And it, it's a very practical one. We know that the Republicans have done a fantastic job in the 20, uh, 2010, 2012 census and redistricting, gerrymandering the House. So should Democrats just go and, you know, gerrymander it back? Um, in many cases, they will try to do that in, in places where they can. Um, but really, we need to have our guide star be one person, one vote. And not have situations where you can, where you can lose the you know overall vote for the House representatives by five points and still have majority. That's not how. That is not democratic practice. So, I think that the long term needs to be that we need to be setting up uh, nonpartisan commissions to do redistricting. But again, does are you going to have a case where it's? Uh, nonpartisan commissions in the blue states. So everything is fair and square in the blue states. And in the red states, it's still partisan gerrymandering. So the the Republicans get sort of the best of both worlds on both sides. You need to balance it. And I don't have a, a final good answer other than to say, I think Democrats really need to do both. And that is going to be a challenge. Okay, thanks for the calls. I really, I enjoyed that. Uh, I, I hope it was uh, an edifying exchange. Uh, we would love to get more questions. So if you have a question, it can be a follow-up to one of those, a new question, anything you want, give us a call at 646-868-8393. That's 646-868-8393. Uh, that's a, it's a voicemail box. So give us a call. Tell us your first name, where you're from. Ask the question. Again, try to keep it fairly concise because we played them on the air. And we look forward to getting more of your questions. So what we have for the rest of this episode is we are talking again to Adam Davidson, who is a staff writer at The New Yorker. And one of the reporters who has gone as deep as anyone 
on not just the Trump Russia stuff, but the business history of President Trump, the corrupt practices, the working with uh, you know shady figures abroad, working with organized crime. This it's a, it is a fascinating story in itself, but it is also the sort of the seedbed that the Trump Russia stuff comes out of. So what we're going to talk to Adam about today, we're going to talk about the latest on Michael Cohen, and we're also going to talk about this this uh, lawsuit the state of, that the state of New York has against the Trump Foundation. Okay, Adam. So you're you are here for your second appearance on the Josh Marshall podcast, and we, we've already discussed off air whether it's technically an appearance. This is an audio broadcast, but we're going to talk about two things. We're going to talk about uh, our mutual obsession, Michael Cohen, and he's in the news, and also this less talked about thing, which is this lawsuit that the state of New York has filed against the Trump Foundation for basically just being a slush fund and like being totally indifferent to all the laws that that govern uh, nonprofit foundations. So let's just just to just to bring listeners up to date, probably most of you saw that on Monday yesterday, Michael Cohen did an off camera interview with George Stephanopoulos, uh, which is kind of odd since it's a TV show. Um, And Michael Cohen tweeted out a photo of himself with George Stephanopoulos. So he wasn't exactly hiding it. It's weird. It's kind of strange. Just if I could jump in, his lawyer, Michael Cohen's lawyer preferred that it was off camera or the decision was made to not appear on camera. Is there any reason why you would be fine with his voice and the quote? Well, his voice wasn't. Well, that's the thing. Yeah. Well, I think it was recorded, but then they didn't. I don't know. Um, you know, at a certain level, visuals can communicate more, give people more to chatter about. Right. But I, I don't know if there's a, a narrow legal difference. I mean, I would, since none of us are in our lawyers in the room, we can just make stuff up. Yeah. And, <laughs> and the thing I'm going to make up is if he's in a court of law and they have videotape of him saying the opposite, that is powerful. Yeah. I don't know if it's... I think that's exactly right. But Jur- if they'd have to like, bring George Stephanopoulos in and have him testify that yeah, no Michael Cohen... Yeah, it gives some distance. Really. Gives some distance. Yeah. There's, there's no question. And, and, and just, you know, just at a basic level, setting aside like credibility, did he say it, did he not say it? Again, people are people. You see a person, you see him say it, that just has a... You can't... It's body language, all, sort, all sorts of stuff like that. What do you make of, let, let's, let's set aside the sort of the atmospherics of the interview. What do you make of that interview in terms of what Michael Cohen is going to do, how whatever he does is going to play into the future of the investigation? So I, I saw Michael Cohen's basically publicly declaring he is no longer an ally of Trump's. Right. That he is saying my loyalty is to my family, i.e. I am not going to jail, and then explicitly condemning Mike, condemning Trump's commentary on Michael Cohen's own legal uh, experience. So saying, no, it's not a witch hunt. No, I wasn't right. raided. The FBI was respectful. So, so clearly this is an act. This is not just a conversation. This is a public act to one person. It is saying to Trump, I'm not with you. And I don't understand fully why that was strategically clever. Now, remember, we have to remember in this whole story that these aren't 
the smartest people in the world. And I think that particularly applies to Michael Cohen. And that might particularly apply to Michael Cohen, and and Michael Cohen has done an awful lot of things that don't make much strategic sense. Um, However, he does seem like someone who has an instinct for self-preservation. So my sense is there is some something happening that we don't know about that means it's in Cohen's interest to fully take off the table a pardon. It would be very odd right now. I mean, just... Oh, do you think so? Because I've actually... No one knows, but I've at least seen in the last 24 hours or so some, you know, sensible people who who opine on these things saying that, you know, don't be so sure this is a signal that he's cooperating. This is more signal like, you better pardon me quick or I am going to cooperate. So that it was actually, that it really was saying to Trump, like, now or never, dude. Now, I'm not sure that's true, but you rule that out sort of... I. It's not that I rule that out. I mean, again, these well, are... as yes. far as one can rule as anything out. As far as one out, can yeah. rule anything out. I saw it as a more aggressive act because it certainly raises the pressure on Trump to pardon, but it also raises the cost. A- after that statement, right. pardon starts to look like an explicit quid pro quo. And right. so I feel that if, if I was in Michael Cohen's shoes, I would ha- there would be ways to finesse and again the word finesse and Michael Cohen don't often right. go together but there'd be ways to finesse that conversation to signal to Trump right. hey I'm right. wavering right. but not so blatantly so he could have said I've known the president for a very long time we've worked extremely closely together we've done a lot of work together <laughs> and everything I know in my experience with Donald Trump is that he is loyal to his friends and he's a good man and I have never seen it you know something right, like right, that that right. would basically communicate the precise message right I'm close buddy this was a s- several steps more in the direction of I'm done the cost to you, Mr. President, of pardoning me has increased, not decreased. It's harder for you to pardon me now than before. And also, knowing who Trump is, Trump, because remember, and you are the person who has taught me this more than anyone, I mean, Trump's core persona is this theater of cruelty, this right. theater of submission. Right. And Cohen has just publicly owned him. Cohen right. has publicly said, no, you're wrong, Mr. President, you're lying. And Trump has no ability to, internal ability that has ever presented itself, it presented itself to do anything other than crush someone who does that. So I, I just don't buy that Cohen was thinking this is a, a, a call out. I think this was a I'm done with you. What I don't understand, that nothing I know would tell me this would be the moment he would. I don't know why you declare that before you are just known to be. Right. Uh, right. Uh, uh, well, so I have, a, I have a, a, a thought on that based on something I heard. But something that just occurred to me based on, on, on what you reminded me of just now is that one thing about it, I think the, the I mean, not that Trump needs a lot of logic to, to I mean, just do whatever the, you know, whatever the fuck he wants. Um, but if the person facing legal jeopardy is basically saying, I am being crucified as a part of a political witch hunt and this is wrong, they're, they're really after you, Mr. President, there's at least a kind of a glide path there of the president saying, you know, 
come after me, not after Michael Cohen. I'm going to pardon Michael Cohen because this is just wrong. But what Michael Cohen actually said was, yeah, prosecutors, I think that they're, it's totally righteous case they're pursuing here. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm probably really guilty. Yeah. And also yeah. kind of like, and the FBI guys, they were great, man. I, right. yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's a funny thing with that FBI thing because I, I think it, most of us don't want to, um, it's hard for anybody to admit this, but when you are placed in that kind of situation and are vulnerable to some to other people with lots of power there is a part of of a lot of people's psyche who are kind of like thank you for treating me well you know it just it plays with your psyche but it is kind of funny because like dude no one like i mean i'm sure it was not fun at all and i'm sure they were professional but i'm sure it sucked absolutely right like really sucked and the the other key thing to think about in this exchange. So we have Michael Cohen and Donald Trump literally talking to each other through the public media, through Twitter. They are communicating with each other because it's hard for them to communicate right. one-to-one. And, because, and legally vulnerable. And legally vulnerable right. to do so. But there's also a whole host of other characters. There's Alan Weisselberg, the CFO or whatever, the head finance guy at Trump Organization. There's Jason Greenblatt, the former general counsel. There's Alan Garten, the current general counsel. There's, I mean, there's a, a long list of Trump associates who, are, who, like Michael Cohen, have a lot of potentially incriminating information, we think, we don't know. And so the, the, the core Trump logic with his team is you always profess an almost, you know, and not even an almost, you profess a North Korea level of loyalty right. to me publicly. And you, you both, you also enrich me and benefit me publicly. And then you get a tiny little bit of favor. I mean, it's not a good deal. It right. is not a deal that people with a lot of options would ever sign up for. So if Cohen is now pardoned, he is, there is a signal to a whole bunch of other people that is disastrous for Donald Trump, which is you get to stand up to me and I still have to help you out. Right. And, and I think of, you know, it, it, I, I wrote about this in The New Yorker. It's kind of this prisoner's dilemma where, so let's say, I'm just to make up a, a number, there's a dozen people who really, and I, we don't know, but who, who have information that's potentially impeachable for the president or really damaging to the president. They're all looking at each other with kind of an awareness that being the first guy is, you don't quite know what happens. It's right. a weird political time and your life might be ruined. But being the eighth guy is not good either because right. you're probably right. going to end up in jail. Right. So you want to be two or three you don't you know and and so if michael cohen is basically now in pole position um i i think there's i would guess a fair number of pretty sleepless nights and heated conversations between a lot of these figures and their lawyers and wives this week because they let, are almost all men now let me ask you a, a a question that is that i have wondered about a lot and a, as you say trump had has a lot of lawyers in his orbit, a lot of people who are general counsel or, you know, various uh, business lawyers for his organization. Now, my assumption has always been that the people like Alan Garten, who we see quoted in the press a lot, uh, Jason Greenblatt, who is now the Middle East envoy or whatever, but was, was he general counsel? He was general counsel. Okay, general counsel. Um, My assumption had always been that those guys worked on the relatively legit stuff 
And when things were really dirty, that's when you had someone like Michael Cohen come in. Ergo, uh, those were the people who, you know, he's the guy who's really got this stuff. Now, I, I, I know that I think it was actually in response to that piece that you wrote in The New Yorker that Tim O'Brien had a little kind of follow-up, and I love Tim O'Brien, you know, great book on Trump you had there, um, but basically came in and said, dude, come on, Michael Cohen, Jay- uh, not Jason Greenblatt. Who do- or Alan, maybe he- it was Jason Greenblatt. I guess Greenblatt. he did say Jason Greenblatt. He's the guy who really knows the stuff, and, you know, Michael Cohen is just like a flunky. What's your take on that? Because my sense, again, is that those guys are more with the semi-legit stuff, and Michael Cohen is the bad stuff. Yeah, and, and I... Tim O'Brien is, you know, like the dean of Trump, yeah. Trump scholars. Now that um, he, he's like the Harvard chairman of the Trump department. Yes, exactly. Yes. And yes. I almost always defer to him. Yes. If, he, if he and I disagree, I just assume he's right and I'm wrong. Except, except in, the, in this one okay. issue, where um, where I'm largely in agreement with you that that as Tim says, there are people like Alan Weisselberg, um, Jason Greenblatt, who've been with Trump longer, who are involved in a lot more deals, but that. As one former Trump person told me, and I found this very credible. Would you like to call them a capo? A capo. (laughs) Well, no. I mean, that's actually the point. Because this person said, early on, he tests you a little bit. He, he he probes your ethics. And, in, in, you know, he asks you to do something small and a little sketchy. You, you know what? This is almost, I mean, this, this will sound like a bizarre analogy, but it's almost like these cases you hear in these Me Too stories where you have a predator who sort of either grooms or tests someone, tests out a potential victim and, and kind of gets a sense of the response and, or, or, or an accomplice, you know, kind of like the, 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 it's, it sounds, um, it sounds very yeah, predatory. I th- and it I is think predatory. it is predatory. Yeah. And I think it, 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 it has similar, I, I don't want to lessen the, you know, I mean, it's different. Yeah, it's a very, yeah, it's different, a very thing, different thing. But, but, but there are but, patterns about you about how someone who who uses other people will right the instincts to use out. other people, yeah, yeah, and also yeah. to make them feel guilt and shame, to and, make them and, and, and complicity, to make them complicit, which is yeah. totally inappropriate in a sexual harassment or, or sexual predation. But in this case, actually, is literally true. They are complicit. Yeah, and so. Um, so that's one dimension that I think that, um, you know, Michael Cohen, certainly there's there are other people whose names come up a lot as like I it's a it's an obsession of mine whenever I'm talking to Trump folks like who's in the room when he really needs. And, and I have a small list of, of those names. I think Jason Greenblatt is a very problematic figure because while Michael Cohen was actually traveling to meet with oligarchs, he was right. in the former Soviet Union in Russia trying to gin, gin up these deals and and that's very problematic so he would have been the you know the face but, has, but, then, but Jason but Greenblatt's name is as far as I I mean has his name really ever come up well his name is on all the contracts that I have found problematic okay. um, like with, with with Azerbaijan and um, he it it I do think that he was experiencing a sanitized version of right. the deals maybe delib- I mean I, I I find it likely that there was willful blindness that right. there was and and I think he, no one could argue that he was an aggressive um, compliance officer he was not like demanding the highest right. levels of scrutiny right. of, of Trump's so so I, I, I my gut sense would be that 
based on what I know, that Jason Greenblatt, for example, who was um, Trump's general counsel since I think nine. I think he was co-general counsel for a while from like 90, from like 2006 to 2009 and then was general counsel until 2017 uh, alone. Um, my hunch would be that he would have been, he seems like a person who would have known to not actually right. break the law, but would have ignored been aware, what was happening. Ignored maybe. what is happening. Right. So right. Um, anyway, but, um, but that being said, there, there's... I am assuming, again, I don't know, but in in building a case around Donald Trump and explaining who he is, and, and this actually gets right to the Trump Foundation story, part of it is saying, yeah, you know, hoping, hopefully for those who want to prosecute Trump, you know, on this day he did this thing and we have it on tape and it's clearly illegal, you know, the sort of smoking gun silver bullet. Right. But I think that the other thing that is crucial in the Trump story is there is a blatant pattern and practice of pursuing relationships with incredibly problematic figures in the U.S. and abroad, of aggressively not vetting them. Mm -hmm. Essentially, in my view, putting out a sh global shingle, I will put my big gold brand on your super sketchy project, right. and you will pay me a lot more money, as we discussed last time. And so I think that that case requires a, the more repetition, the better. So having 30 times that Trump said, eh, don't worry, I trust the guy, I looked him in the eyes, that kind of right, thing. Right, right. Um, it, you know, th this kind of building a circumstantial case, but with volumes of data. So for that, no question. Um, lots of people who may not know of anything directly right. illegal will be enormously helpful. I mean, I certainly would put Jason Greenblatt high on my list of if I could give truth serum to somebody and, and interview them for a right. few hours, he would be high on my list. So let me ask you, okay, so so here's another thing I was curious about in that, in that Stephanopoulos interview with Michael Cohen, is that he, um, you know, down the line, kind of like, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell the truth and... I'll cooperate if I need to, but I didn't know, I didn't see any Russian collusion. I didn't have anything to do. You know, he seems adamant on that front. What do you make of that? That is very interesting. There's obviously the famous Steele dossier, Michael Cohen trip to Prague that I'd say every journalist I know, including myself, has spent at least some time looking into it. There's a lot of tantalizing suggestions that maybe it did happen. There's a lot of, I mean, for example, he sort of disappears for three days um, right at the time that he might have been there. Um, but then no one so far... No has, one's been able to nail no it. No one's down. been able to nail it. And, um, and he was not a very active part of the campaign, that, that we know for sure. And so, um, you know, if I had to pick what do I want to know from Cohen, it would be much more the Trump Organization's business practices with former... Uh, Soviet oligarchs right. than Russian collusion. I mean, I think that um, unless the Prague trip is true and Cohen was carrying a bag of cash to right. pay off hackers. Um, but wasn't, let me ask you this, wasn't wasn't the larger accusation in this deal dossier, not just that there was this trip to Prague, but that after Manafort left the scene, they needed someone to, to sort of manage the ongoing communication? Yes. So it's not just that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, so, the so, whole thing may yes. not be true, but the whole there's thing, a broader right. story there. Yeah. So, so the broader story is, yeah, is that when Manafort leaves, that Manaf and this is the Steele 
basically the Steele dossier picture. When Manafort, Manafort is managing that relationship, he has obviously deep, long um, ties uh, with not just Arapaska, but but other figures in Ukraine, the Soviet, in, in former Soviet Union. Um, in that, uh, you know, in in the the sort of story you hear, and again, this is all alleged. We have no idea. Mm-hmm. Is that you know perhaps the the Kremlin wanted some distance. They hired this group of um, hackers um, in in Romania. Is it Romania or it's uh, the, the the, uh, the the Guccifer? Y- yeah, but it wasn't. Anyway, the pre Guccifer. Yeah. yeah, and then there was some problem post Manafort. There's some need for communication, and it's not clear if it was money had to be paid or some service had to be rendered. Right. And Michael Cohen was dispatched. Now, right. the reason that would be incredibly um, significant is not just that it would help show collusion. It would all but prove that Donald Trump was directly involved because there's literally not one person alive who would choose Michael Cohen for such a delicate operation besides Donald Trump. (laughs) And so um, there's not one person, certainly in the Trump orbit, who would pick Michael Cohen to do such a thing. And, and, um, and so I think it, it's sort of seen as if we can put Michael Cohen in a room with Russian hackers, um, it is truly game well, that over. Would be t- that would, I, I would think, if that were true, and we simply do not know it is true at all, if it were true, then it would, it would basically, well, in, in a strict legal sense, it would make everything that Russia was doing during the entire campaign be part of a conspiracy that Donald Trump was willfully, intentionally, knowingly a part of. Yes. Which is really kind of, I mean, maybe they'll just say that was awesome and, you know, (laughs) did it to own the libs or whatever. Yeah. But like in any sort of like normal legal sense, that would be, that would be the whole story. Let me, let me tell you. Although let me just, because this is my little pet peeve, which is that in my view, Trump is not qualified to be president for a whole host of reasons. And, and I think the more you understand his business and business practices, the less, it's not that the less you care about Russian collusion, it's just, sure, that would be one more reason why this is a man who's uniquely unqualified right. to hold this office. But his business practices are the thing he has spent every waking minute of his life doing. Russian collusion, even if it turns out he was actively involved, would right. have been like, those are the boring meetings he has spent 10 right. minutes on. You know, right. Right. So, right. so it's not getting to the core of the man. I mean, it's shocking and terrible, and if it happened, we should we should know about it. Right. But, but I, I don't like, and, and I feel like the GOP has been remarkably effective at making this weird bar that if you, if you don't prove Russian collusion and all you prove is that Donald Trump is a horribly unethical, corrupt businessman, then game over, we win, the right. GOP wins. And, right. and I just push back on that. I mean, if, if I like, I just had a talk with my boss the other week that the other day that, you know, if Mueller's report does come out, and it's, you know, to quote my most hated phrase of the last two years, a nothing burger, um, I'm going to be at work the next day, you know, continuing investigating Trump, because I think that there are deeply troubling facts about our president, and Michael Cohen is going to be key to those, even if he had nothing to do with right. Russia. So anyway, sorry, end of speech. I, I guess the takeaway there is we don't know what Cohen is up to 
because I don't think Cone knows the situation he's in yeah. yet. So let's move to this other question, which is this, which is this. Oh, wait, sorry. Yeah, oh, yeah. But I will say yeah. nothing that he has said, that Trump has said, that Trump's team has said is consistent with innocence, an ethic, with, right. innocence <laughs> with an ethical businessman who's done nothing wrong and is just perplexed as to why all of a sudden no, it he's is, under it scrutiny. Is, it is striking that, from as you said, from the get-go, the... the um, the line from the sort of the Trump people was not, hey, Michael's a is a straight up guy. I'm sure he's going to cooperate with this investigation. It was Michael's a loyal soldier. He's not going to he's not going to, you know, and he's then not going to flip on the boss. <laughs> and then the, That's never and then the response is ah, they all flip <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. and 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 then impeach him. So so. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it, innocence I, is not a real innocence. Every is now not and then, defense. I mean, I yeah. happen to work for David Remnick, who's a very ethical, mm-hmm. moral guy. He just is, and I'm just imagining just if somehow I was suddenly investigated for being part of some scam involving David Remnick, the, yeah, the, the, to make the an Remnick absurd criminal, empire. the Remnick criminal right, empire, right, right. I would be like, what? Wait, yeah, what are you talking be, about? Yeah, this is ridiculous. And everyone who knows David would be like. I, there must be some misunderstanding. I, this is some weird here. thing. Yeah. I don't. Yeah. This is crazy. So, um, yeah, that's so not let, happening. So here. let's talk about this case that the state of New York has uh, against the Trump Foundation, and even that suit—it's a lawsuit. It's a civil suit. It's not a criminal suit. No one, you know, no one going to jail. And even the penalty is, I think, just that they can't be on boards and you know can't can't run another scam nonprofit for a year. Or well, two remember or these are. Like that very civically minded people. So telling yeah. them they cannot be yeah. part of the charitable <laughs> armature yeah, for a year exactly. is tough. But so in a sense, relative to everything else we talk about, it's pretty, you know, it, it's pretty small time stuff. And yet it is, and you discussed this in one of your articles, it does give you a sense of how thoroughly indifferent the Trump family is to the law. That they don't even, I mean, there are best practices for how you run a corrupt, found, you know, a corrupt nonprofit organization. And they weren't even doing that. They were just saying, you know, sending emails like, you know, given to Corey Lewandowski, you know, basically just making it a part of the campaign. So what do you, in, 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 in your piece, I think you were, you were saying how you were, you were writing about the judge, that, what the judge said in this hearing and everything, where the judge is like, almost like saying, like, you guys are obviously guilty. Why are you, why are you not settling this It was pretty this case? remarkable. So I mean, tell us about that. Yeah, so this, um, and I think most people who would listen to this podcast and certainly who have listened this far into this episode, I assume are pretty familiar with David Farenthold's amazing yeah. reporting on the Trump Foundation before the election. Um, and, and the core of the story was there. I mean, there, there wasn't a huge amount of news about what a, you know, what a scam this foundation is in, in, in the uh, New York State Attorney General's decision to, to sue um, the Trump Foundation. Um, and, uh, and, and just to explain some context. So w- when you, you know, when you have a foundation, a 501c3 um, corporation like, like the Trump Foundation, you're basically, you basically have a deal. You don't have to pay taxes. People give you money, get a certificate that they don't have to pay taxes, but you have to do stuff for the public good. You can't just buy yourself a car. Right. And the crime, the actual you-go-to-jail crime you're violating are uh, federal crimes. They're tax uh, violations um, and uh, um, 
and and I, I believe there possibly are some, campaign finance po- violations. Camp, po- possibly campaign finance violations, and I believe there are other you know there's sort of wire fraud, money laundering, all that kind of stuff. So, um, so the New York State Attorney General, who whose office oversees nonprofit groups in the state of New York, I know this because I'm on the board of the Westbeth Corporation, which is a nonprofit in the state of New York. Um, they can, all they can do is sue you and get a settlement. So y- you might have to pay a fine. or and, and, and their ability to do that is because even though the, the tax stuff is federal laws, you have to like register in the state of New York. You have to register in the state of New York. And I believe that you have committed you know, a fraud on the people of New York. Right. That, that, um, so um, so and, and I, I, I've been looking at cases like this. And this happens, you know, it seems to happen once or twice a year. There's some rich family in New York. They have a family foundation. And they just start using the money to buy themselves stuff. Right. And, that, and that seems not uncommon. Um, and those people's lives are not ruined. They go, you know, they continue to be fancy New York people. They're kind of embarrassed. Right. They don't tend to go to jail. And they seem to almost always settle very quickly because these are not subtle you know, the New York State Attorney General, like when I'm on this board, we have to fill out so much paperwork, so much conflict of interest documentation. Yep. No one's going to jail because they forgot to sign this paper right. or they, um, it's, these are very blatant they only cases. egregious cases. Yeah, e- egregious cases, the 100% cases. So the judge was really trying to handle this like a New York State foundation case. She was not, she, she just kept sort of brushing off suggestions that like she deep think state of, yeah or, or think of the fact that the president's involved i mean she right. she laughed when when she when they pointed out to her that um the president would have to might have to testify and and then she said yeah he, you know essentially yeah he probably will so um anyway i've gone on far too long so so the let me explain how not to think of this case okay so this this case may or may not unfold in October, right before the midterms. I do not think this is going to sway the midterms. I don't think there's going to be some revelation about Trump's foundation that's going to have political salience. However, while we didn't learn much from the state attorney general's case about the external activity, like who they were giving money to, how they were using money, we did learn a lot about the internal workings of the Trump organization. And the and as you said, it is it's not just blatant, it's literally like just wildly, insanely blatant. So you have to have a board. The board is there to represent the public and to oversee that these funds are dispersed. The people on the board were people like Alan Weisselberg who and, and Trump's secretary who say they never were informed. Oh, that, that they Rona were, woman was involved? I, Ro, Rona or the other one, Norm? I, I think know, it was Rona. Okay. That they would never, no one even bothered to tell them that right. you, we put your name down on this board. Right, the board right, had right. not met in, since 1999 um, that, you know, let alone any paperwork filed, any, any segregation of accounts. So, so, as you said, at the time that, you know, Trump's business is expanding as it's doing more and more business with these corrupt oligarchs, et cetera, et cetera, um, there is truly zero best practice. I mean, like worst practice. I mean, right. no practice. As bad as, as you can get. As bad, yeah. Literally as bad as you can get. As sloppy and, and stupidly. I mean, they could have easily, easily done exactly what they did and just fill out a few forms and have a pro forma meeting every once in a while. So that is really important. The other thing that was really important to me is that 
Alan Weisselberg, who is this key character, he went to work for Fred Trump, the dad, in 1970, and then quickly started working with Donald in 1973 when Donald um, started to become active and has been Donald's sort of right-hand finance guy throughout. Right. And there is a general feeling that guy, he knows where all the bodies are buried. He really, um, that, that and, and he might have buried some of them right. himself. And, and you see... Alan Weisselberg potentially facing, um, I mean, it, he's in a position, and he did testify, or he in, in a in a um, not in a public hearing, but in a what do you call it? Um, a deposition. A deposition. Okay. He de- he was deposed, saying, "No, Trump's lying. That didn't happen." And then saying, mm, okay. um, and then when they ask him about bringing the foundation checkbook to a political event in Iowa, he says, "Well, you do what the boss tells you." And they say, "Well, did the boss tell you?" He says, "Well, no, he didn't tell me, but you but do he what, told me. But he told me, yeah." <laughs> and so um, this is the first evidence I've seen of a wedge between Trump and Weisselberg, which. Um, could you know? I I see that as a very now. Key let, me, step. let me ask you this. So I guess in theory, this will this they'll have like a trial, a civil trial on this in like October. So right before the midterms, if that happened, Trump could be Trump could have to testify. His kids could have to testify. Like Corey Levin. I mean, I I really think that in September, they're just going to say, okay, never mind. Yeah, or, or like the day before Labor Day, yeah, they're going to say. Yeah, I mean, there's yeah. just no way they're going to. I mean, and because I, even though it's kind of technical stuff and we know the details, having the president being just shown to be lying and stuff, that's, but he, that's he, damaging. But all that does is dismiss the New York State Attorney General's civil suit. So that has no impact on criminal prosecution. Now, I do not think that the Trump IRS and the Trump Department of Justice are about to go after Trump. But if Democrats take either House of Congress, this is a huge avenue in to use their subpoena power to go, for example, after Alan Weisselberg really heavily and use this and the as a wedge. with the election gives it a, I mean, obviously, a any, um, as we learned in, in the 1990s, a congressional committee can investigate anything they want, things that happened 100 years ago. There's no statute of limitations or anything like that. But the fact that this was, there's a clear nexus to the 2016 presidential campaign bumps it up in terms of the sort of legitimacy, kind of, you know, that it's under our purview, blah, 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 blah. Um, okay. So, yeah, I can't, I, it seems to me, end of the summer, they settle this thing after making, like, a lot of... And if Republicans and maintain control of both houses of Congress, we never really hear about never, this again. Exactly, but exactly. if Democrats take either, I would bet you that it's not that there's going to be the Trump Foundation hearings for 10 years. It'll just be one of... It'll be, but it'll be a major one yeah. because it's the, it, is, it gets at Weisselberg. And it's a reason, it's a, you can think of it as a credible reason to, to go after to the core him. books and how, like, really, how did this organization, how was money coming in, how was it dispersed, um, and, and what controls were over it, et cetera. And that, I, I can say with assurance, that's something Democrats will be very excited yeah, I, to know I, about. I, there, there's, there's just, there's, we've gotten, as, you, as you, were, you were kind of alluding to before, we've gotten so focused on the Russia stuff that and there's his past practices as a as a business person i wouldn't agree with the argument but there's certainly an argument you could make like 
okay, he was a crook. He was a crook. Everybody kind of realized he was a crook when he ran. He got elected. So that's kind of the past. And, and you know, maybe you could look at it, but it's not, there's no, it, it kind of is what it is. To me, the big things, and I know we, we've, we've talked about this, is he's using the, the White House now as, as a profit center. You know, his sons are out cutting these deals, you know, with everyone and anyone. Um, that is a big deal. And that's something that is not just, you know, holding someone to account for bad deeds, but is actually like damage is happening right now. And, and like, you know, probably we're going to find out that, you know, something he did with South Korea had to do with some business deal that like Eric was putting together. I mean, it's a big deal. It's a big, big, big deal. And and I would say, well, first of all, I would say, because I hear this all the time as someone who's written extensively about Trump's pre-election business. Oh, who cares? Everyone knew he was a crook. They voted for a crook. That's who they wanted. So you can't get him on that. And and my feeling is... People for, didn't know he was quite a crook. I don't think people is. know the details. Yeah. I, I, I would not believe that people could know the fullness that I feel I know and still think of this person as someone you'd want to be president. So I feel like that's a challenge to me to just communicate what we already know right. more clearly. But then also, you know, when's the break? When's the mo- is it is it November 6th? Is it January 20th? Is it sometime in between where the man he was, you know, remember, during the whole campaign, he was actively in business with someone he knew was likely laundering money for the Iran's revolutionary guard. Right. That is the man who was elected president. Right. He right, was right. for more than half of the campaign, he was actively pursuing a deal for a Trump Tower Moscow and actively pursuing Putin's favor in that deal. We know that. Right, right. Um, and, and so what, you know, was it, when was the moment? You know, he, he, he cut off ties with the Iranian money laundering partner in, I think, December 15th or something. Was that right. the day he became right. a moral man who was right. going to not be corrupt? Right, right. And... Um, so the, the extent of it and the nature of it. And then also how, how the people around him were trained by him to pursue profit under his administration. And I think we are seeing that. I mean, forget Scott Pruitt, who obviously is out, outrageous. I mean, we're, we're seeing that in, in so many characters around Trump, Jared Kushner's dad and, mm-hmm. and on and on. So mm-hmm. um, I, I think there's a, a lot of meat on that bone politically, as well as just we need to know yeah, who this no, man is. Absolutely no question. And, and, and uh, I think in an episode we're going to do later this week, we're going to talk about uh, how Congress can just subpoena his tax returns. There's a couple different routes they have. And everybody kind of treats that this is like the sort of the, the cunt, the, you know, the sort of the Moby Dick, like we'll never actually get the tax returns, but actually you can get, you can get them in a pretty straightforward way. And I, and I, I suspect that will happen uh, if Democrats take the House. So anyway, Adam, thank you uh, so much for coming on. Thank you, Josh. We, I, really I, I, it. I Yeah, no, I, I, I you know, you, you have, you have such detailed knowledge of all of these different business scams that, that. Trump and the Trump family have been involved in. I mean, we're st- we are still yet to know kind of what Michael Cohen's role is in this. And I think the key is Michael Cohen doesn't know <laughs> what Michael Cohen's role is yet. Yeah. Uh, so thank you so much. Thank and, you. And uh, we will, uh, I hope, talk to you again sometime Anytime. soon. Anytime. I love All right. it. Yeah. Awesome. So uh, thanks for joining us again this week. Uh, if you have a moment... 
take time to subscribe to our podcast and rate it. Maybe uh, share it with a friend. Over yeah, the share July with a friend. Holidays. Yeah, we're trying. We're trying to grow the audience. We'd really appreciate that. Remember that the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew. Ready to give it a swirl? Get twenty percent off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. Thanks, David. I'll Thanks, talk Josh. to you next week. Bye. Later. <laughs>